Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN, and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode was about HCI at the Edge, and we started with SUSE's Harvester HCI integration of Kubernetes and Kubevert and uh, Longhorn, their storage system, and some pixie booting magic they threw in there. Um, and we talked about that a little bit and how Kubernetes can fit, but we really morphed into edge operations and how hyperconverged infrastructure can or can't fit and what works or what doesn't work. That included outposts, included Amazon Edge, it included the cloud to edge migration from an application development perspective. So a lot of fascinating topics throughout the conversation. Uh, you will learn a lot and I know you will enjoy it. Today's topic was inspired by Harvester, although I think we can expand this more generally, um, especially given the crowd. Uh, I'll, I'll, I can give a little bit of background on the Harvester pieces, and I think there's a generalized question about, do we need Edge HCI? Is it useful? Um, Harvester is a project by the Rancher team at SUSE, where they have combined uh, they're Kubernetes. I suspect this is the K3S stuff, but it, it might just be um, regular Kubernetes. And um, integrated in Longhorn, which is their a distributed storage system, I think, based on Ceph um, under the covers. Kubevert, which would create VMs. I, don't, I haven't seen as much Kubevert stuff lately. Um, and then, but there's then it's a, a Kubernetes uh cluster all around. And then the thing that makes HCI HCI is the hybridization of mixing your storage infrastructure and your virtualization infrastructure. So um, the idea being that what you've got here is a mix of servers that have a general, general footprint, and then you can use the storage on them to create a storage array, and you can use the compute on them to create a, a compute array. Um, but it's one, it's basically one building block from that perspective. Has anybody actually played with this system and installed Harvester? Not really on my end. Um, I, I, I can kind of see the, what they're going for. Like it, it feels a lot like they're trying to do an uh, OpenStack equivalent on top of Kubernetes. I, there's, a, there's definitely an element of that because there's a, um, seen some HCI, OpenStack HCI pieces. Um, uh, and I, I think what, what they, the main thing that they add is, is that um, they're, or at least the appeal that I see from the documentation is that they make it really easy to uh, uh, to add more nodes. Like it's basically a, a pixie boot. And I'm not seeing where they see the management server because my experience with this stack is there's a ton of work that goes into building the node, installing the Linux, Putting yourself on these VLANs. Um, There's a link at the bottom. Uh, the read the docs. That is the, 
Thank you. And Rob, that was kind of my, sorry, I'm late. I was real estate agent here. The, uh, the, that was kind of my first question. Actually, I was thinking about this earlier before the meetup and that no pieces is exactly, as I talk to people and as I find out where the challenge and where the value of HCI is at, uh-huh. it's, it's actually, people are not caring as much about how do you deploy it versus how do you, you know, kind of day two ops and how, how do you get out of the business of, of IT infrastructure? And that's kind of the appeal of HCI. So I'm not sure who the audience is for this approach of just seems more like more complexity. So I suspect, considering this is coming out of Rancher, that the audience was a uh, customer. And so (laughs) this is a solution in search of a problem other than the one customer that they came Mm. up with a solution for. Uh, I think there's a broader question here about Edge CI, the relevance of it of edge HCI. And so, um, and then That's this, true. and then this approach. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I get the, the feeling that the people who would be interested in this is those who want a Beowulf cluster for VMs. Throw away commodity nodes that you just add uh, in a in a loose fashion, but I mean, why not use Proxmox for that, or OpenStack, or VMware, or there's there's some. Well, the, the the difference I think is with with Proxmox or VMware or, or OpenStack, if your node goes away, there is some work that you need to do to redistribute the workload and to remove the dead node from the cluster. I feel in, in this case, at least based on what I'm seeing, is that the nodes themselves are treated as ephemeral. I mean, even with Kubernetes, if you lose a if you lose a node, you're 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 you've got to de- you know, pull it out of the system. I mean, the the yeah. Kubernetes scheduler with Kubelet may, and I, I just haven't seen it, may reschedule that VM on a on a on a different system, I think I think you get that as a resilience, but that's not necessarily a win, um, depending on how that system comes back online and what the, where the state was. So I guess that's another question for me. I, I always thought like Qvert was a stock gate versus something. If I want to deploy VMs net new, Qvert isn't design, the intent is to use Qvert to say, I want to deploy net new VM environments, but to kind of help me limp along until I can containerize all my apps or kind of choke out my VM uh, workload load. 
So it's um, kind of I'm I'm, chat, I'm 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 a little bit confused right. as to like the audience. Again, the, I, I think I, <laughs> I agree with Rodney that you know there was probably a customer needed something, and you know what we ended up with a product. Maybe we can sell it to some other. We can um, you know get some other folks to use it and get support from as well. I, I would I would say that, that that's not the only use case of Cooper. I mean, uh, if you need total process isolation, you, you need a VM anyway. Um, being able to to manage that from the Kubernetes control plane has its appeals. I I don't know if I would do it, but I can see that it has some appeals, uh, especially when you're not in the cloud and and you, you don't have the, the the cloud APIs to launch the virtual machines independently. Um, there there are also cases where uh, workloads just are not Linux kernel compatible, so we can't run it in a container. There, there's another component to this. If you're if you are all in on Kubernetes, which I'm assuming a user of this solution would be, you can cube cuddle your VMs with Kubevert. Yeah. Which if you're looking for a mixed environment where you're doing containers and VMs. Um, then this actually would, you know, gives you some of that protection. If I think the only thing you're doing is VMs and you're using this as your main VM scheduler, I, I, I VM scheduling is actually pretty hard. The question becomes the difference in audience of, let's say, who, who's interfacing with Kubernetes versus a virtual machine. The traditional art or thought would be the developer is doing the Kubernetes interfacing, whereas a traditional sysadmin is doing the VM interface and is Kubernetes or kubectl really what I want to interface with as a, a VM admin? I, I mean, going from VM admin to Kubernetes, I, I can see the, the hesitancy, uh, but going from Kubernetes Kubernetes to VM management, there, there's definitely the appeal of taking advantage of Kubernetes features. Uh, and, and just to, to, to draw an analogy, uh, at my previous position, I, I, I was supporting both Kubernetes and on a standalone uh, like Docker, uh, Docker Compose installations. And uh, the, the rubbing point for, for Docker for me like going backwards was always losing the the, the Kubernetes probes, like the the, mm -hmm. the lightness and, and redness and start probes. Uh, I mean, Docker you in, in Docker you can configure health checks, but the but the runtime doesn't do anything unless you unless you run Swarm. Uh, so it, it will ignore a failing health check. Uh, so. Go, looking at this and going from Kubernetes to the, to the VM side, it, there, there is an appeal in saying, I want to be able to configure my control plane to restart the VM if, if it's not responsive. Um, I mean, the, <laughs> if you have the, the Kubernetes control plane there already and, in, and you get those probes for free, uh, I can see the appeal of, of trying to do that for VMs. I'm not saying it's it's the, the right way of doing it, like uh, because I mean the saying goes right. You want 
but once you have a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. So <laughs> I don't know if, if 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 this is the right approach for VMs, uh, but uh, I can see how someone might have thought uh, that this might be an interesting approach. Right. Well, yeah, it, it looks the, like uh, they've actually. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to actually co-sign that. I, kind of the way as he was talking, I was thinking about circa 2009, 2010, when I first time I ever spun of an EC2 instance. And I said to myself, this is really stupid. Like, I don't, <laughs> as a V admin, I don't understand it. I don't know why you would do something this way. And, you know, a decade, a little over a decade later, I'll look at if you were, uh, if you were born in EC2 and you came and looked at the way that uh, VMware or Red Hat or, any, or KVM, any of one did them in an enterprise, you're like, this is really dumb. And uh, it, it seems like it's too heavy of a way to do something what you were born in the cloud to do that was simple. So if you're coming at it from the perspective of someone who's always worked with containers and you have this requirement that you need the kernel isolation and you need a VM, it doesn't make any sense to change your operating model uh, to use in the control plane to use something other than Kubernetes. So I can I can I can buy that argument that if you're born in Kubernetes, then VMware makes no sense to you, or even OpenStack to some extent makes no sense to you. You should you know I I just need this additional requirement of it being an isolated uh, kernel. In, in a sense, this goes back to the previous discussions we had about complexity. I mean, yes, Kubernetes adds more technical complexity, but it reduces the process complexity to mm -hmm. more the maintenance complexity. Well, it does things for you, right? That's, that yeah. makes sense to me. And, and I think that, I don't know, the more I'm looking at this, the more interesting it becomes. In that, right, because the other thing about this is including a storage backend. So when you create a VM, you're automatically putting it into a uh, storage-backed system. So you can do migration, you can persist, you can persist it even if the machine gets shut down. Um, there's a lot, there's my, you know, this, this is the whole appeal with HCI is that you're not, you're, you're getting, uh, you know, the storage backing for the VMs is part of the environment, which then reduces the complexity, it increases the system complexity, but it reduces the VM use complexity. Yeah. I mean, there's, of course, also the, the downsides. Right? Historically, HCI uh, has had some very no notable uh, bumps in uh, performance scaling particularly when it comes to storage. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so it, it, it's not a general workload solution. Yeah, that's pretty, we've been doing some research on this topic specifically. And we're walking away thinking HCI, the, the appeal of HCI is that it simplifies the consumption and to some extent, the design of the underlay, but the uh, the tying like tying compute to storage isn't what people want. What people want is the improved workflow of provisioning and management of the system. Whether that's 
whether that comes with, you know, uh, uh, converged storage and compute is irrelevant as to making sure that I have the experience that I want to have. So, you know, we get into this purest uh, argument that a solution, you know, when we get look at the DHCI solutions versus the HCI solutions, that the HCI folks argue, well, DHCI is an HCI. I don't think people really care uh, as much as HCI folks make it out, make them out to care. I, I agree. I agree with that. Actually, in some ways, if, if you are administering a system, it's nice if a, the storage just builds itself and you're never worrying about it. But, you know, if some ways having a separate storage array that just does storage array stuff is easy. Um, yeah, it's very much easy. Where we, you know, we built our lab based on vSAN. Mm-hmm. And we don't regret doing that because we wanted to mimic the decisions of five, six years ago. And this is what someone five, six years ago would have done. But we definitely feel the pain operationally of saying, okay, we need to apply firmware to the system. And managing the fact that compute and storage are married together is a pain in the butt without some type of overarching system to handle it for me. Like the appeal of the DHCI and HCI systems proper is that I can give the, you know, I can kind of feed it a a firmware update and then it orchestrates everything that needs to happen for that firmware to be applied. When I have to replace that with OPEX and people to do that, it is a huge burden and kind of eliminates all the value. We call it NECA HCI. It, 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 it eliminates all the cost savings and value of com- converging storage and compute. Well, so Keith, an- another thing, uh, I mean, storage and compute, we've been, I mean, we've been down this road before, right? Um, you know, the uh, hyper-converged uh, um, infrastructures did that. Um, and it seems to me that the it's a it's also a skill set thing, which is that most people who are storage savvy are not necessarily compute savvy and vice versa. <laughs> that's very much true. And that's uh, you're echoing kind of like what we're finding. It, and in general, what are, the story that I'm trying to tell is that I need to move away unless I unless I have the scale that any of this matters, then I shouldn't be mucking around at these lower levels at all because I need my attention needs to go elsewhere. Like this edge problem that we're talking about in general, I don't want to be in the the minutia of solving the compute level hardware design unless I actually have to. And today I do have to be in that minutia, but the goal is to get out of it and to rely on folks like Rob to solve the, that lower level problem for me so that I can focus my, my resources towards the higher abstraction problems. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole thing to, of disaggregate hardware and software disaggregation in general, right? So you, you want to make, Hardware stuff go away, so you don't have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, but the reality is, is that it's not going away. That's, <laughs> that's, and, that, and, that, and I think that's where we get, you know, like three years ago, that you asked me what what should we be doing? I'm like, oh, 
focus 100% on the abstraction and let the hardware providers figure out the hardware. And it just simply hasn't happened. No, it hasn't. I agree. No, they don't. They don't have a lot of incentive. I mean, the, no. And I think treating it like a, a separate layer is actually become a little. It, from our our perspectives, it's it, it's it, if you treat it like an isolated layer, it it actually becomes a little bit more problematic. And you're adding, you're making the system more complex by by shunting it. Um, and and if, if when I look at their 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 bare metal pieces it's pretty minimal um and and very hardwired um but maybe well, that doesn't surprise me sufficient <laughs> because it's hardware engineers that are designing this stuff <laughs> well it's not just that it's hardware engineers designing this stuff it's hardware engineers that's never done operations so well, that's, that's that's very true <laughs> that yeah that becomes the gap that i see i'm like when i talk to i sit my business six between the marketing and product teams in most cases and there's such a huge disconnect between kind of how they view the value of these things and how customers use them which is you know the story of every product in history yeah 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 it, I mean, I do, I do see the appeal from it. You know, an edge to me implies that it's not a data center environment. You don't have administrators on site, probably available by remote. Um, so that there's, there is definitely the the fraction of a drop-in self-contained environment. And and I've, that that to me is a consistent truth from an edge perspective. Yeah, I can't agree more with that. Like the, you know, if you think about a retail location, you know, simplest form factor, you know, I can send an Intel milk with three, three connections or three Intel milks with three connections. Yeah. And I have a cluster. If one of those things fall, I have the management fail. I have the management system to identify which one and I can just send another one or have a hot spare on site. And there's no need to to send an IT person. That is, you know, Nirvana. But it just the problem is it gets way more complex than that. that. Well, this is this has been the head scratcher for me from that perspective because the Nooks have very minimal uh, management capabilities. They're not really, you know, hardened or protected from that. They don't even really have multiple. I think they do have two Nicks, but. Um, you know, the, it, building it in that, and there was a Gale Computing, I think, which is a, a Nutanix competitor. They do hyperconversion infrastructure. Had um, some store-scale virtualization platforms that they were trying to do. And they, would, they, they were doing them with Nix, and then they would, like, daisy-chain them together. Something like that. It, it struck me as, it, at some point, the complexity of that, you know, just put a better box in place. I guess there's redundancy in the nooks, but you're going to have to build a whole bunch of stuff like, you know, a distributed storage plane uh, to guarantee that that stuff works. Instead, and I think you know, that's what people run into from a practical perspective, Rob, that, you know, yeah. paper, they'll see something like this and like, oh, I can do this with nooks. Yeah. And then they run into all the management problems that we've solved in the data center two decades ago. Yeah. 
uh, with hardware providers putting IPM and uh, all this other value add that drives up the cost of the hardware. And we see why the hardware costs so much more. Yeah. Mm hmm. This is this is exactly between the the dream and the vision and and what's what's practical from a drop-in perspective. Um, what's what's a good IT footprint for an edge? Like, would we say that there's a minimum IT footprint from an edge? Pers like that we could think about as a minimum IT footprint. Um, over this question. I can, I Rob, I could do. I mean, I, I have that experience. I mean, that's what the my, the VNS product is all about. I mean, we have a minimum footprint. It's a it's an x eighty six box. I think the smallest one we sell is got eight cores. It used to be we used to have a four core, but it was kind of useless. So it's now up to eight. But um, and. Uh, and it's it's a single box. Um, it's standard. I mean, it's Dell or Lanner or Vantech or you know, it's white, just white, uh, white labeled, off the shelf boxes. Um, and it's got um, I forget how much memory. I think it's sixteen is the minimum. I could I could look it up, but um, it's you know it's a pretty small footprint <laughs> and we find typically our customers buy two of them uh i mean mm. the off-the-shelf price of this of this things runs about 600 bucks so <laughs> they're not super pricey so um you know the, if we put two of them for failover purposes keith that r relates to your earlier comment about um uh, maintenance you know at the edge um the idea is if one fails, you know, we ship another one out or we send a tech and, you know, it's not, it's not a senior level tech who goes out and swaps a box out. Um, and, um, you know, that for, for retail, for gas stations, for quickie marts, for, for uh, that kind of stuff. It's, Do you it's have customers in that case running, running a VM, like running their own workloads on those units? Um. We do we do have that VM. That those boxes are a little larger because they have caught remember we're running our network stuff on them as well. So the uh, the the ones with the network plus the workload, I think the minimum box is a 24 core box. So it's definitely okay. bigger. But again, I think the retail price of the, the bottom end application edge box is probably about twenty five hundred. <laughs> mm -hmm. so and that's that's actually not uh you know people are finding the cost isn't in yeah the real cost isn't in the hardware like no it's not not in the hardware. it's in uh this this layer that this is hoping to either solve or add to it is you know i know rob we've had the conversation uh in the past like is kubernetes the right platform for the edge and it's kind of like, well, that's the platform we have. 
So that, <laughs> well, that's what we're seeing getting the point. Yeah. And the the like the competition, the like the real world competition. If I was advising a customer on the edge solution today, the real world competition would either be something like this, because that's what we have, or looking towards Amazon with the one uh the one one rack of the stuff uh, plates. Um, wait, wait, wait. There, that one rack stuff is not cheap. No, it's not. I looked at my uh, one. My oh, oh the, yeah. the outpost. Even yeah, yeah, outpost is very and and Azure has a version too, the Azure Edge. Yeah, but they Azure. run like seven hundred fifty k to start. <laughs> well, no, that that's the the that's the full rack one. The you can get a one get rack, a one, rack or yeah. for yeah, you actually have just a one user a one user server now based on that was one yeah, of the announcements coming out. Yeah, I think out. it's based on Dell, but um. Yeah, but that's I mean, only like 26, that's only 26 grand over, over three years. And I'm getting the AWS control plane out to the edge, which, yeah. you know, that value of the control plane is super valuable. But, it, you know, that's, again, an unknown operating model. I don't know if, like, if I'm a retail shop and I need 700 of those or 1,000 of those, I don't know if AWS has the scale logistically. Not, and this is funny that I'm acting the logistics question about Amazon, but I don't know if they can support me in the way that I need to be supported. Well, it's interesting that you say that because Verizon can't, because we do that all the time, right? We have customers that we deploy 6,000 widgets out to customer sites, you know, regularly, 10,000. We don't care. Um, yeah, that takes... This is kind of, you know, throwing AWS's numbers back in their face. It takes 10 years to get 10 years of that experience. Uh, we've been doing it, what, for 40 years? <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've, made the, I've made the offhand comment. I can see Amazon, AWS buying someone who does this because you... There's no shortcut to getting that experience. Scale doesn't get you. Scale doesn't magically get, you know, they can sell a thousand of these and, you know, in a month, but that doesn't magically get you to 10, 20, 30 years of experience of supporting this model. And I, so that's where I, this is where I question AWS's ability to execute. On I question their commitment to it. I had, and this happened a few years ago, I had a very weird conversation with their network company because, you know, obviously they buy network services from you know, Verizon, among others. And um, so I was having a conversation with them and they basically said, oh, we'd like to become peer, you know, telco peer, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, Verizon and AT&T and Luma, you know, are peers, right? Um, which means that, you know, network traffic goes over each other's networks. Um, and it, you know, it's kind of a, it's a share model, right? And that model has been around for years. Um, and most people don't talk about it. I don't think the telcos really talk about it outside of the industry. So, so it, Amazon was coming to us and saying, oh, hi, we'd like to be a peer, you know, and, and with you, you know, so that and their entire motivation is so that we give them their network services for free. <laughs> and I and I explained to them. I said, "Okay, you want to become a regulated telco? Fine, have at it. But I don't think uh, you do." What people forget about this, yeah, <laughs> from from right. from getting the getting the pieces and parts in. No, it's and it's regulated because it has to be able to scale like that. 
exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the I, that that would be interesting to have a Amazon as a peer with the same reliability as uh, US East One. That would be that would be interesting. It uh, would be interesting, but the answer is they wouldn't do it. Yeah, because <laughs> they don't want to be a telco. You know, well, they don't want to be a telco, and it's funny the the sense that I got from, you know, kind of going back to this edge and Kubernetes at the edge and HCI on Kubernetes at the edge goes back to the practical conversation that customers are having and challenges that customers are having. They're having these data center like challenges mm-hmm. out to the edge, but not resources to build, manage, to architect, to design, manage and deploy these solutions. And, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for the risings of the world. There's a lot of opportunity for MSPs at the world of the world. But I don't know if the uh, going back to this conversation about this HDI solution, I don't know if the software expertise is there and tied to the operational expertise to put HCI, specifically HCI, at the edge in which, you know, one site might have three boxes and another site might have 15 boxes. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's tough, tough operationally. Yeah, uh, no, it is. Because no, as far yeah. as I can tell, the telcos are probably the only ones that really have that expertise. I, I, I might argue, argue some of the big outsourcing outfits probably have at least some of it. Because um, they, they manage the far-flung empires of their enterprise customers. Um, but that's about it. But even, even the telcos aren't reaching into the, the, the interior, right? This is, this is a platform operations challenge in the, in the middle mm-hmm. of all that. Right. Yeah. We um, don't generally get into the customer's land. You're right. Oh. I mean, this is, so there's an operational concern here about building the building and maintaining the cluster setting, you know, setting up the VLANs, the networking, um, you know, build, building the site up. Um, I, I think uh, uh, yeah. some of the motivation is also just distributing content, particularly data-heavy content. Uh, I mean, we, we, do we have things like the, like the bandwidth alliance or the cloud player and the cloud providers where Cloudflare provides the peering to access the data faster. So basically, mm-hmm. one, one, the, they essentially do, do the caching for, for, for the cloud providers. Um, but I can see that, that uh, the cloud providers themselves would likely be motivated to, to want to try to address this at the network level themselves. Because it, it breaks control control over it closer to them. Yeah, I've always struggled with the model, even in a data center. I've always struggled with the outpost model what? in the data center because there's this the it's that land part of it. It's that part of the of the stack where AWS the DMARC where AWS ends and the 
um, customer takes over. And as it, I think onesie twosies is fine. And for the largest customers, probably not that big of a deal. But once you start looking at the one U and two U stack options, you go down market and that stuff just isn't as nearly as rock solid as the stuff when I'm, you know, selling a $750,000 outpost, that's going to be a different engagement to a $26,000 outpost. <laughs> oh my goodness. That, that, I hadn't even thought about that. Yep. Yeah, the no. skill of that engagement is just different. Yeah, well, very and much also, and also the And also the cost, the, the, so the challenge, the, and this is an interesting component of what they're showing with Harvester, which is the all open source, Sort of the implied do-it-yourself or minimal minimal licensing pieces with this um, is I don't know you know you start replicating something across a hundred sites um, and it's going to take operational you know there, there's a lot of enterprise work due in building that type of system like we've talked before and I'm not sure if you know where people start to get cheap on doing that work. Um, so I guess so is, this is Simon. I'm sorry. Simon. In my view, Amazon, Amazon is trying to get um, third party vendors to implement solutions for customers. And so they're trying to <clears throat> get customers familiar with AWS services to rely on the fact that Amazon will be there. They're trying to reach through the carriers to the end customer. And some of the carriers will develop and resell those services too. So ultimately, I agree with the concern, but just in the same way that the Amazon Prime truck that pulls up to your house is not actually owned by Amazon probably or driven by them, it's a small third-party contractor. They're trying to get the last mile of these things implemented by other people. Yeah, well, they have to, Simon. Their their cost their costing model doesn't work with it unless they outsource that piece of it. I don't have to tell you that third that last mile is always the problem. Yes, and. Mm -hmm. And the, and the carriers have got the relationships with the customer and they're strongly incentivized to implement cool services. So, Right. right. Which, is, which is why we brought out Application Edge. That was exactly what it was addressed. It was like, it came from like a million customers asking us, well, hey, you have this box out on our sites. Can, can we put some of our applications on it? <laughs> yeah, something nice. And, and, and I'll give it the... That's funny. Sure. I, something I asked for 15, 20 years ago. I'm like, the, the these boxes are appearing in my data, in my edge. You know, mm -hmm. why, why am I deploying V? Why am I deploying VMware on top of that? In right, right. <laughs> and and the carriers are. I mean, they have huge advantages. Mm. They run at scale. They're used to dealing with stuff that isn't allowed to fail. They are very good at serving business customers. And so they, they are the ideal folks to increasingly taking, take over running your stuff at the edge. And the only problem is we know nothing about applications. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, I've had many conversations. I guess the exciting part about all of this is that you find, you know, somebody with deep enough pockets that can, you know, do the design and roll out on top of something like this, it becomes really compelling. And there, there are customers, I, I think there are customers for it that will pay, you know, a higher, you know, Amazon type money for a solution because it's a solution. It's actually a solution to the problem versus customers needing to hire the expertise internally and kind of figure it out themselves. That's true. But it takes a lot of money to, you know, I don't tell anybody on this. It takes a lot of money to build something like that. A lot of money and a lot of talent that, frankly, is kind of hard to find. Um, yeah, I can tell you about the lot of money because we built the network piece of it. <laughs> yeah. And and it was, you know, it was a hard birth. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, once you're there, it's, it's fine. It's just, you know, getting there is... is it's a task. Well, the other thing is we, mm. we were pioneers in this and, you know, working, we were working with, you know, obviously Verizon's not a software company, particularly. So, you know, we were working with partners and we had to explain to the partners what we were doing. <laughs> it was like a totally new concept for them. One, one company, actually, um, the CTO later told me, because we we did we wrote up like a document of the specs we were looking for, and we shared it with a number of companies when we were in the process of doing the choosing which partners to work with. And uh, one uh, the CTO of of one company that we didn't happen to have cho chosen admitted later a couple years later that he took the spec that I had wrote and and literally turned it into his next product. <laughs> Yeah, the this is from my customer days. This is a problem that I absolutely wanted my telco to solve for me, but the it wasn't the maturity wasn't there yet. So it's uh, I'm glad to see that uh, every every I know every hardware vendor I talk to give exactly this same use case for five G infrastructure and. Uh, yeah. uh, you talk to VMware, they're very open that there seems to be a revenue sharing opportunity between uh, telcos and VMware at the uh, not too different, uh, not with a design, not too different than what we're looking at now with this Harvester. You know, you take uh, you take vSphere and insert some IPUs or uh, yeah, some IPUs and it's, it's, it's a very interesting uh, scenario. But again, Services and application on top is is the killer part. is is hard. It's hard. Right. Right. Well, and we we ran into this. I mean, with Application Edge, when we originally launched it, it was only available for containerized applications. So it's based on mm. Kubernetes. Mm. And you know what? Most of our enterprise customers they haven't containerized their applications yet. It's a really interesting right. mismatch. Uh, that that that's something. From a technical perspective, you think, okay, that makes that's the perfect platform, makes perfect sense. That's what everyone is talking about. But Verizon's and telco providers in general, they're uh, they're not talking to those folks that's building those applications typically, which is the the problem that 
you know, all enterprise IT folks have is that they have really interesting solutions, but they're not talking to the folks that's building these applications, mainly because they can't, those folks typically can't afford them. That's an interesting comment. Now, well, mostly, I mean, obviously we're selling this to the enterprise. Oh, we are talking to the SIs. The SIs are actually more interested because many of them are building new applications in that are containerized. Now, to be honest, we've added the capability of supporting VMs as well. So that kind of skirts around the issue, but but obviously VMs are heavier, so you need a bigger box to support support them. Yeah, my experience in the enterprise has been that if someone's building something on containers, they typically don't have it's not that they can't afford it. It's that, and me and Rob have talked about this, they haven't budgeted it for operations because they don't understand operations. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there you go. I mean, that, that was the point I was going to make. Is, yeah. is Once you get to oh, this part where you like, oh, I need these pieces, there's no money. You you didn't ask for money for this. Well, that's because they the developers don't know doodly squat about uh, right. you know this this, this to circle. me is the actual appeal of the outposts or the azure edge solution um and one of the reasons why i think there's a premium for them is that the developers aren't developing it for edge <laughs> they're developing it for cloud regardless of yeah. where it's yeah. going to yeah. go this has been one of my edge points for a long time and and so from that perspective whatever you know developers are used to using is going to need to be the operational footprint from an edge perspective. Um, so that means Kubernetes. It's going to mean containers and VMs for things that were predate that. Um, and it's going to have to have some type of cloud-like operational pattern. Um, yeah, I agree. For it to work. That's right. And Amazon is relying on you also wanting to go higher up the stack and use familiar things. From mm -hmm. Outposts, right? So in Outposts, the whole idea is, oh, it's just Amazon. Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting you say that because um, Outpost is not the first time a company has packaged up a rack of stuff. EMC has done it several times. Oh, yeah. I know Dell did it at, uh, at least at some point, HP. You know, it's a very, it's, to the marketing product team, sounds like a great idea. Oh, we'll just oh, pack yeah. this up. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Um, the reality is that has not none of these products have done well in market. That's right. None of them, was, except for HCI, surprisingly. Like, for whatever reason, HCI has actually... Dell VX Rack VX Rail is super popular, so yeah. you know there's 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 a story in there somewhere. I, I think part of that is sales pressure from from the Dell side, and, and I know when a couple of years back when uh, uh, again previous positions, uh, I, I was uh, we were. We were at that time, we were looking at, uh, at expanding our, 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 our rack infrastructure by a couple more more, uh, more storage arrays, and, and, and Dell was pushing very very hard towards HCI and, and, and that way from there. Yeah, it's pretty uh, funny. The I'm I'm sure I'm not disclosing any NDA information because I heard this uh, 
via 98 channel. But uh, circa that time, they were incentivizing the sales force to uh, sell VxRail uh, heavily. Uh, and I think that's main, that was mainly to compete against Nutanix. And then they flipped it because the one thing that's more profitable than selling uh, commodity servers as enterprise storage is actually selling enterprise storage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it very, very profitable. Enterprise storage than it is to sell HCI. And that, that, that switch got flipped at some point in the past year or two. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I mean, storage, you'd think it's, it's been the same, but the, the, the storage APIs changed a lot. And, and, and this is also speaking of APIs, like, I, 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 I totally agree with, with, with I think better it was you said it, like the, the, the purpose of, of, of these outposts is that like it, it's not bringing the, the edge closer to the cloud, it's just bringing the, the cloud closer to the edge. And yeah. it, it's about bringing the cloud APIs closer to the edge. Um, there, was, there was a recent article um, about Kubernetes itself, and, and that like, their the argument was that Kubernetes isn't about containers, it's about the API. And, and, and this something that, that hits close home to, to, to what I was arguing before or already is, is that Kubernetes is an opinionated way of, of doing things. And, and, and so is the cloud. And I'm bringing that to the edge, like bring, bringing the consistent uh, API for, for creating uh, a VM, for creating storage buckets. It, it has quite an, an appeal. Particularly when we're talking that, about that, that in some ways is the topic that I outlined for two weeks from now, which is this this infrastructure as code collaboration piece is what what you're getting at, which is how do I define my my operations in a way that is repeatable? So I'm not dealing with these snowflakes. We we are over time, by the way. So yeah, um, then drop out. Super. I appreciate the conversation. This was. Fascinating and went in uh, exciting and interesting directions that I didn't didn't anticipate. So I appreciate everybody's voice and input on it. Wow, what a great conversation! We really covered the operational challenges for Edge in a very direct way, and it's one that I know we are going to keep coming back to because solving DevOps at the Edge is a core part of our mission. So please join us at the 2030.cloud. Be part of the conversation, and we want to hear your voice here too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put Uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and, you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.